The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Linda, how many of these pills have you taken today? Oh, those. Help yourself. I've got another bottle full. Anyway, tonight's special for me. I've got a part in the family. What? against the enemies of the public peace is gaining momentum. Today's figures for operations in the urban area alone account for the elimination of a total of 2,750 pounds of conventional editions, 836 pounds of first editions, and 17 pounds of manuscripts were also destroyed. 23 antisocial elements were detained, pending re-education. You see that? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 28, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be we are pleased to have in studio with us again today none other than Salim Mansour, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science, who's here to talk today about, I guess, the general theme of freedom of speech. Yes, I mean, uh, where do we stand in Canada and in the West? Well, it's not looking good these days, certainly from some of the things we've been talking about. Yes, it is not looking good. No. Before we get the conversation going, let's remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on channel 292 shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. So, Salim, we have a, a very large non-Canadian listening audience all over the world, and as a matter of fact, so perhaps we can start by recapping what M103, Motion 103, actually is here in Canada. Well, before the Parliament went on the summer break, one of the controversial issues that the Parliament dealt with was a motion brought to the Parliament by Liberal backbench MP Ikra Khaled from um, Ontario, Mississauga, Ontario. And the motion that she brought to the floor of the House has now come to be known as the motion against Islamophobia. Though what is Islamophobia was never defined in the motion, but the premise of the motion was that we need to investigate in Canada whether there is systemic racism and to what extent there is systemic racism and any discussion of Islam that is critical of Islam in, in, and, and, and Muslim is in that sense a reflection of the systemic racism in Canada and if so then we should take the proper measure which would be the legislative measures to censor, to ban any such discussion on Islam and Muslim that tends to be part of the systemic racism and would be defined as Islamophobia and it would be open to possibly prosecution. So this being a motion, it is not law. However, it is going to a committee, the Heritage Committee, to address the issues that uh, were brought up in the motion. The, the committee could come out with recommendations for the legislature to create and pass laws. Uh, exactly. I mean, a motion is not a law, but the very fact that the motion was put on the table, it has an intent. 
so you explore what is the intent of the motion. The motion was brought to the parliament. It was quote-unquote debated, uh, and then it was voted upon, and and it passed with an uh, overwhelming majority, not only the fact that the liberals hold the majority in the parliament, they didn't necessarily have to be whipped into it, and the NDP voted along with the liberals. But the surprising thing was a very large number of conservatives voted on with the liberals. On I don't this. find that necessarily surprising. The conservatives... Post-Harper, at least, the Conservatives are rudderless, and I don't think that they have any philosophy or matter of principles, and it's not a surprise to me to see them go ahead with this motion. They're always cowering in fear, anyway, of of being seen to be racist themselves, so they, they seem to support any motion that would suggest that they may be racist. You're right, but there is a history about this. I mean, if you recall... During the Harper administration, there was a struggle that took place, and some of us were involved in it. That was a struggle to remove Section 13 from the legislation that uh, covers uh, the human rights uh, regulations in Canada and monitors the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, And that, too, was resisted by the Conservative. It took a lot of effort to get only a part of that uh, section repeal, not entirely. And so the issue of the Human Rights Tribunal, uh, question of hate speech, quote-unquote, have never been systematically dealt with. And I think we as a country, we as a people, need to have a broad discussion about this. And the fact that the Conservative Party abandoned that position and did not take the matter into the public for a broad discussion was, I think, much more than an act of cowardice. It was a matter of undermining the very fundamental basis of a free society. We are on a very steep slope now, and we, I believe we have gone so far down the slope that possibly of returning will be a matter of a very difficult constitutional fight. And I don't think our people have been educated about that. I'll just make one further point on this. I would go as far as to say that in Canada we do not have free speech. What we have is a regulated speech. And in fact, in all of the West, with the exception of the United States, there is no free speech. There is regulated speech. It's only in the United States that we come closest to the ideal of free speech because of First Amendment. I would I'd just like to harken back to something I've said on the show before about the right of freedom of speech, and that is that everybody in the world has a right to speak their mind and to express themselves. It just remains a matter of fact whether or not the government respects that right or not. So there is a fundamental right that is inalienable, inalienable, inalienable by any government that you should be able to say whatever is on your mind. In Canada, that is curtailed quite often, and there are several examples either of people being uh, prosecuted successfully for saying their mind. For example, a priest handing out literature condemning homosexuality out in the West, 
or say intimidating people like Ezra Levant, Mark Stein, the uh, intimidation of Ann Coulter when she came to Canada and was not allowed to speak at the uh, University of Ottawa for fear of uh, violence. Uh, So not just a legal dampening of one's freedom of speech, but also a callous uh, and, and, and orchestrated attempt to uh, to create fear amongst those who want to say things that may be outside the pale. Okay, so so the point that you're raising, Robert, is at the level of what is happening in terms of measures being taken by uh, the civil society, the various institutions, so, you know, the universities. For instance, in the universities, basically we no longer have free speech. Uh, Agreed. We, we, we have again, uh, regulated speech, controlled speech, and the university will decide. For instance, what recently happened in in United States with in Berkeley when a conservative speaker by the name of Ben Shapiro was invited to come to speak, there was a whole lot of protests going on. Finally, he was able to speak, but one, one of the things that is happening is that the university administration is demanding people who invite speakers like Ann Coulter, Ben Shapiro, or any number of people on Milo. Uh, uh, Charles Murray, who was beaten or, or almost physically assaulted when he went to university campus, is to post such heavy fees, security fees, that it becomes prohibitive. Where is that money going to come from? That same demand is not placed upon people on the left. We saw that actually here at the University of Western Ontario when Jordan Peterson was coming to speak. Yes. There was zero protest. Yes, sir. And yet the organizers were faced with security fees. Exactly. So these are the various methods that have been employed across the civil society. But that's where I think our media focuses upon. And they, these are little stories anecdotes, episode, and people get absorbed in the debate and then they throw up their hand. What is not debated, what is not discussed is the fundamental principle. That's what you are asserting, that the people have the right. This is the basis of classical liberalism. This is the foundation. This was the battle fought. You can go back all the way to John Milton's famous statement about the struggle between two views in his classic book, Ariodipetica, Uh, I hope I got the pronunciation right. But anyhow, recently, I just want to mention, I mean, this chain of struggle that has been going on. Recently, only last month, the great Chinese freedom fighter, Liu Xiaobo, he was barely in his 60s, and he died, and and we all know about that. It barely hit the news, you know, he was suffering from cancer. He had been thrown into the prison. What was was he thrown into the prison for talking about free speech. And I just want to read a a quote that was from his Nobel Prize speech that he gave, or rather he was prevented to give because he could not go to receive his Nobel Prize. So he sent his speech to be read. And this is what he said. Freedom of expression is the foundation of human rights, the source of humanity, the mother of truth. To strangle freedom of speech is to trample on human rights stifle humanity and suppress truth. Now, that is what we are talking about, the fundamental right of freedom of speech to say what we believe, whether it is acceptable or not acceptable. So long we are maintaining that the individual have that freedom, but that freedom is always comes with the notion 
which John Stuart Mill talked about, the harm principle, you know, what does it do to the other? You know, so your freedom or my freedom stop at the end of our nose. So if that freedom of speech leads to violence, then that's a criminal offense and it should be dealt with criminal law. You know, the famous statement of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, you do not have the right to call fire in a crowded theater. Uh, no, you don't have the right to cry fire in a crowded theater when there is no fire. When there's, okay, so yeah, you're absolutely Everybody right. Everybody mixes that up. In other words, right. the reality is the arbiter. Yeah, is there a fire yeah, or not? Yes. It's, it's, you know, yes. Jordan Peterson likes to say, I'm not so much an advocate of free speech as I am of true speech. And you have to have free speech to get at the truth. To, to exactly, right. because that is, that is the struggle that goes on. So I come back to it, that in Canada we don't have it. It was very interesting that a few years ago, our uh, Chief Justice, Beverly McLachlan, uh, invited to speak in the United States, spoke about this issue in letting her audience, audience of politicians, students, academics, and jurists. And she pointed out, and if I may take a moment again and share with you Justice McLachlan's words. These are very, very important words. That I'd just said. like to point out that you're actually reading from your own book that you wrote on this subject. Well, I, uh, in Delectable Lie, devoted a consider considerable amount of space to this discussion. So I'm contextualizing it. Yes, I'm going back. People forget. That's the other thing. We forget. We live in a constant state of amnesia. So here it is. This is what Justice McLaughlin was pointing out. Let us consider the constitutional protection of free speech in both countries. Canada, like the United States, has a constitutional guarantee of free expression. Our Charter of Rights and Freedom guarantees freedom of expression subject to such reasonable limits as are demonstrably justifiable in a free and democratic society. In other words, we have free speech, but the state can limit it in reasonable ways. We have no First Amendment right. That, as a matter of fact, that is Section 1 of the Constitution, which basically limits every single right subsequently enumerated in that constitution. So Canada's constitution is a sham regarding uh, freedom of In, in, in terms freedoms. of the, f the fundamental principle, it is a sham. And so here we have a situation that is coming back with the parliament opening. This summer recess is over and, and the parliament will be opening. And on the agenda is motion 103 insofar as the press informs us. Uh, in other words, when the par parliament went on recess uh, before voting on this motion and which was passed with an overwhelming majority, then it was followed up with the proposition that this motion will be sent to the proper ministry that is responsible for these things. And the ministry is Heritage Canada and that they are going to examine the question of systemic racism, whether it exists, doesn't exist, they will explore it and they'll come back to the parliament and then instruct the parliament accordingly so that we go back to the first principle since all the people or the majority said that we have to do this heritage canada will then come back and say yes there is systemic racism yeah when we come back from the break i want to talk about systemic yeah. racism right your honor i think we can make this quick mr bell is alleging defamation of character the footage depicts what actually happened and truth is a complete defense to defamation
Judge, the video was aired without a context, so it does not represent the truth. Systemic racism is something that I've encountered as a term, a political term, uh, dating back maybe 20, 30 years when I was on the Board of Education here in the City of London, when they had sensitivity training and things like that, when people from the community, the left of the community, would come to the board and say there is systemic racism, therefore you need to give us money to bring these programs to the children to prevent people from uh, being racist because of the system. Now, I'm going to editorialize here just for a second, Salim, and then we'll come into the history yes. of, of systemic, so-called systemic racism in Canada. Oh, I've got a lot to say about it. <laughs> but just to editorialize here a bit, we have systemic racism in Canada. By their own definition, They're, they are the system, the liberals, the progressives, the, um, the left, the communists. They are in the system. It is rife with communists. And they are the biggest racists I've ever encountered in my life. Constantly. Very few people. No, I'll, I'll correct that. I have never met a racist on the right. By right, I mean correct side of, you know, uh, promoting freedom um, of, of speech, individualism, that right. And remember, as we've said on many past shows, fascism is on the left. It is a socialist collectivist system. So all of the racists are on the left. All of the racists are in power. So yeah, we've got systemic racism, all right. And it starts with Justin Trudeau. And then just works its way on In down. fact, I, I, when, I, when I became the first person to beat the Human Rights Commission on, on systemic racism against a landlord, it had nothing to do with the landlord's opinions or feelings or anything. In fact, he was the opposite of a racist because he allowed people of other races into his building and was accused of being racist for allowing too many Asians into his building. Can you imagine such a thing? And you know what the system was? The system said things like, oh, his windows weren't, didn't have triple glazing like some apartment building that's occupied by white people five miles away. And that makes the landlord racist. That's the system. And it is so manufactured. You know, we, we talk about a dialogue. This country's completely gone fascist, I think. I mean, we are the Germany of 1938, 1939 right now. There is no dialogue, Salim. There's just a monologue. Can you bring us into the past? That's all they allow. How did we get here, Salim? Well, I mean, you know, what, what both of you are talking about is back to, again, I mean, the classic discussion, who holds a power, he is going to define it. I mean, and, and we talked about that, I think, in one of your previous shows where George Orwell talked about it, you know, who controls the present, controls the past, who controls the past, controls the future, whether it is a matter of racism, whether it is a matter of any issues on the table, uh, the progressive agenda, who is in power, and they define what is permissible and what is not permissible. But in this latest iteration around of the problem that we are dealing with, this is in our lifetime, it goes back to our parents' generation. It is the post-World War II phenomena. After World War II and all the sordid and cruel and ugly and horrible facts of that period came out, the Holocaust, the racism, the systematic destruction and genocide of people. And just to, if I could interject here for a moment, Salim, yes, people always look at uh, fascist Germany, Nazi Germany, 
when they're talking about the racism of World War II. And yet, I think they have to be reminded that this anti-Semitism that was in Germany during the 30s, 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s, was also shared here in Canada, the United States, in England, throughout the world. The world was anti-Semitic. Absolutely. Oh, oh, no, the world... A majority portion of it was indeed the Catholic Church, uh, you know, uh, or all the churches uh, in some ways were anti-Semitic. And so this is a long history. But as I say, after World War Two, there was a consensus in the West that certain issues cannot be discussed. It has to be fenced off and it will be area that will be called the protected speech and anybody who violates and enter into that discussion and questions it, then they would be engaging in hate speech. So Holocaust denial became hate speech. And that, that is the beginning of the slippery slope. We in Canada adopted the principle that any discussion of Holocaust, any discussion that in any way, form, shape, tries to give a pass to the Nazis and all their insignia, all their trappings, all the way they go about, they salute and so on and so forth. Anything that has any implication of racism. And by the way, this this came down to is only the white folks are racist. <laughs> We've <laughs> concluded it, that many times. The other thing yeah. too is that a lot of that was all associative thinking and they and they associated the yeah. wrong cause with the wrong effect. Yeah. They associated racialism and, and racial feelings with what was really the problem, the form of government, fascism and socialism, which is the cause of all collectivist notions, group right. rights. You right. know? So it is a collective, collectivist thing. I Completely. Mean, when, you, when you stop somebody, we, we are back to, again, on the question of free speech, and I keep repeating, this is a classical liberal position, uh, a freedom means nothing if it is not the freedom of the individual. The individual is the most fragile element in a society. He's by himself. The individual is ranged against the collective. And whenever the collective decides anything, the target is the individual. So a good society, by definition, reverses that. And that was the classical argument going back to John Milton, all the way down to John Stuart Mill, to Isaiah Berlin, and so on and so forth, Friedrich Hayat, Milton Friedman, that a good society is a society in which the minority is the principle, whether the minority is defended and protected, and so freedom of speech. The point is that that was the slippery slope we got into, and in Canada, we adopted that. And, and the long and the short of it is that once the Canadian Human Rights Commission was empowered with the backing of the federal legislation, that there is hate speech and hate speech will be prosecuted. We prosecuted it. We prosecuted Ernst Zundel and we deported him. The right and wrong aside, we set the precedent. Whenever such precedent is set, that means there is an exception. 50 years later, we come around and the Muslim activists, whether they are Muslim Brotherhood people, Islamists, on, so on and so forth in the mosque, they pick up that precedent. And they say, well, this should also be now applied for protecting us. And therefore, speech should be limited. And so back we are. One exception leads to the other exception. And to f oppose 
motion 103, which is what the entire parliament, the majority did not oppose it, would be to open this can of worm. Are we going to be truly a society where there is no exception? Which is what, by the way, is in the United States, because this same thing was tested in the United States. And the matter went all the way to the Supreme Court. The classic case of this was, do the Nazis have the right to freely assemble, freely speak their mind, freely publish what they want to publish. And they have that right that cannot be challenged, it should not be challenged. This was tested, and the Supreme Court ruled that yes, the Nazis have the right to free assembly, free speech, but they do not have the right to protest the ridicule that will be directed at them. So that is the debate between free speech and... Or to engage in violence. Yeah, exactly. They have no right to engage in any violence. And that thing, whole thing was uh, played out in the recent events in Charlottesville, you know, and, and what is being played out right now in the United States. So when Trump came out and said both sides are in the problem, the attack on Trump was that he is defending the Nazis, he's defending the KKK, but that was not the issue. The left blurred the issue. The issue was, as the Supreme Court has said, that nobody has the right to do violence. In Canada, in Europe, ironically, we don't have that position. And so what needs to be done, what the conservative, if they're serious about these issues, they should have opened the debate and examined the entire history of where we have arrived at. And failing to do that, what we are seeing the phenomena, for instance, Johnny McDonald is being attacked, our founding fathers are being attacked, there is no defense. One side is protected, the other side, you know, has no protection. Right. I'm, and, and we I are like becoming the fact that the people coming out against Sir John A. Macdonald and, and trying to rewrite history or to whitewash history are the teachers' unions. The very people the left. who are in charge <laughs> of educating the young, they are what I call the uh, Marxist foot soldiers. They're the ones with their boots on the ground, with the children in front of them, telling them all of these lies, rewriting history, and and fomenting dissent against the established order which has served us so well for hundreds of years. Precisely. And history, as is politics, is an arena of contest. But if you're going to stop the contest, we then will never know what is true or what is right. Then it becomes relative to the people in power, which is what Nazism was, which is what communism was, is that is those who are in power, they are going to decide. And then they say history is written by the victors after that. You know, Ernst Zundel could come out, and and, and the people like Ernst Zundel, Nazi, um, well, Holocaust deniers, and let them say that six million Jews were not uh, killed during the Holocaust. The facts say otherwise. So when a rational person is met with the two opposing viewpoints, it's easy to see which viewpoint will prevail, as long as people are allowed to express both viewpoints. Right. But we are where we are, and this, in the recent iteration, as I had pointed out, it goes back to that period. And in the case of the problems dealing with Muslims and Islam or Islamism, this problem has its genesis again in the recent period with the Salman Rushdie case that burst upon us 
1989. The fatwa by uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. Yeah, that put him to death. And and that was played out in the West. I mean, whatever the, the Ayatollah Khomeini said was part of that culture or part of that history, kill him to death. But Salman Rushdie was a citizen of United Kingdom. He was a British citizen who had not violated any British law. And his book, should have been defended, he should have been defended. But Salman was pushed into the dark arena of being hidden away. And many leading British writers, thinkers, politicians, and others in in the West, including Americans like uh, former President Jimmy Carter, denounced Salman Rushdie. Jimmy Carter famously said, Rushdie's book is a direct insult to those millions of Muslims whose sacred belief have been violated. The death sentence proclaimed by Ayatollah Khomeini, however, was an abhorrent response. However, it is our duty to condemn the threat of murder, but we should be sensitive to the concern and anger that prevails even among more moderate Muslims. And there were many other voices similar to Jimmy Carter. Well, he talks about many moderate Muslims who were upset. But what about many, many, many other Muslims who were not upset? This was a problem or this was an issue that Muslims should have been freely allowed to debate among themselves. You know, Jimmy Carter was but not simply not. being a book critic here. Yeah, He was actually giving credence to those Muslims epitomized by Ayatollah Khomeini, who wanted to see Salman Rushdie dead, or, failing that, at least... Silenced. 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 And, 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 and that's what, in a sense, is where Motion 103 is treading. Silence them. First of all, silence the non-Muslims, then silence the Muslims. She enjoyed it. She was 14 years old. No man has ever touched her. God gave her beauty. This was her downfall. This is too much. I'm a tired man. I have a heart condition. Look into my eyes. Look deep. Can you see the pain there? This is the pain you give to the people of Iraq. Pain that never ends. Zundel, the Holocaust denier who lived in Toronto and Montreal for decades, has been released from prison in Germany. He served five years there for inciting hatred and anti-Semitic activities. Zundel says he will remain in Germany. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support, and while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived, not just for your listening enjoyment and convenience, but as a record of our dedication, consistency, and principled approach to the discussion of all things just right about freedom, capitalism, and yes, freedom of speech. What we just heard was a 2010 CBC News World news item shortly after Ernst Zundel was released from prison after serving a five-year sentence. And I remember when he was, came through Canada to be extradited. The Canadian government put him in solitary confinement. And I 
just couldn't believe that a guy could do something that would warrant such a such a punishment when he wasn't really the anti-Semite that people painted him out to be. I heard him on Jim Chapman's show many times here in London, and his only thing he would ever dispute was that figure, the six million figure because of, I guess, reparation payments, and it was all political, and, and really, in the end, who really cares? But it's funny you said that Jimmy Carter, in response to the Salman Rushdie event, referred to their sacred belief being violated. What about everybody else's sacred belief in freedom, in freedom of speech? Is that not a sacred belief, or is that just something they throw aside for subjective beliefs? Well, for a long time, we did hold to the view, and as in the case of the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights, First Ten Amendments, it is in a sense considered quote-unquote sacred. So there is a debate in the United States whether the Constitution is the original document and it should be read and understood on the basis of the original oh, argument. Let, let, Just a moment, you raise the issue of sacred, and the progressive left says, no, this is a living document, and we can do whatever we want with it, and we can change it. And so they keep on discovering rights. So Roe versus Wade was the discovery of the right of the women to choose, and therefore you can abort your fetus. What's the result from 1973 to now? Some 60 million dead. I'm just pointing out that there is sacred, but the U.S. Constitution is not sacred in the sense as is the Ten Commandments in the legendary or mythologized mm -hmm. sense that it comes from the Word of God. It was the Founding Fathers and so on and so forth. But we have lost that sense of sacredness about our values in terms of secular values. There is an element of sacredness if there is a consensus around it, you know, and we have a proper measure to deal with it. So for a very long time, as these battles were fought, we came to cherish the idea that freedom cannot be sliced and diced. It is either you are for it or you're against it. That is, there is no exception. And once you start making exception, then that is the slippery slope. Well, as I pointed out, the exception began, you see. So on the other side, in this case, we're talking about the Muslims. They believe, or at least a large segment of Muslims believe, I'm a Muslim, and I don't accept that, that argument of theirs. And I would argue, take the argument back to the sacred text of Islam, that there is no such you know, mandate for Ayatollah Khomeini to have come out with a statement, go kill Salman Rushdie for writing such a book called Satanic Words. There's no such mandate. So this was, again, fascist politics that was used and the sentiments of the people. What the people believe that this is, you know, the prophet is in that sense, quote unquote, sacred, and he cannot be open to criticism and abuse and so on. And therefore it was done. But that principle doesn't exist. Is not to be found in the Quran. That debate the Muslim needs to have. So now you come in, Jimmy Carter or the Pope or Jeffrey Howe comes in and they become the theologians of Islam. <laughs> and by becoming the theologians of Islam, supporting Ayatollah Khomeini, in effect, they're silencing the very debate that the Muslims need to have, just as the Christians had in the making of enlightenment. Reformation, counter-reformation, and the opening of the modern world, of which the highest pinnacle in political sense is the U.S. Constitution. That document stands at the summit, especially the Ten Amendments. Once you have said 
all men are created equal, where do you go after that? What other principle now can you enunciate? That is the summit. Any other principle you enunciate after that is a retreat from that summit. It's going well, down it's the slope. Where people begin the argument left and right on that is what is the interpretation of that equality? No, the, the argument, we entered the slippery slope again. We can date it. This is post-1945. So the slippery slope began. In Canada, it began 50 years ago with Pierre Elliott Trudeau, multiculturalism. It was not about all men are created equal. It became all cultures are created equal. So you see the generic term, all men are created equal, which we all understand as individuals. As Donald Trump said in his inaugural address, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're black, brown, yellow, whatever. When you bleed, you're all red. <laughs> <laughs> and you stand up in front of the American flag, and so we are all Americans. So in, in a sense, this was a response to Black Lives Matter and all the other progressive agenda, you know. That is the segmentation of a society into protected groups and those groups that are not protected. It's interesting what Bob was saying about the definitions, because when that was written, blacks were not considered men. It doesn't matter. That was the battle that was fought. You see, once the principle... Well, I know. My, my, point, my point being, of course, is that it didn't stop the debate. What do you mean by man? What do you mean by equal? You still have to have the debate about the philosophy. Precisely. But when you parse that statement, all men are created equal, it was an abstract position. That's what is political philosophy, an abstract position. Freedom of speech is an abstract position. And then we have to, in history, implement it. Then we get into the nutty, muddy, where the rubber hits the road problem. So when the founding fathers, Jefferson famously, said all men are created equal, he was a slave owner. So he was now caught up in his own philosophical statement. Interestingly, when he first wrote the Declaration of Independence, he actually wanted to put in there the dissolution of slavery, but he was voted against by his uh, peers who said, that's not going to fly. Right. So these are all the matters. The human being, by definition, as Kant says, are born of crooked timber. So we are crooked timber, and the philosophical statement is a statement to which we are trying to navigate and find our sense, the crooked timber being straightened out. The freedom of speech business or, the, or any freedom, freedom of association, freedom of religion, is an ideal principle that is being stated. And we people are struggling of how we will coexist together. But I would say that the, that the Constitution of the United States, or any Constitution for that matter, should not be considered sacred. I would say that it's always open for debate. As a matter of fact, what did they do? They made amendments to it when they found out that it was insufficient or incorrect. But here again, we are, we are going on a tangent. The debate is becoming over the word sacred. Yes. If you say, yes, it is sacred, a secular principle is sacred. Thou shalt not kill was part of Ten Commandments. It is part of the Criminal Code of Canada. Correct. You cannot kill. So, so it is so, a sacred. So if somebody life, attacks you, you shouldn't life kill them? Is sacred. Life That's is sacred. That's not the meaning of it. I know. No. That my point no. is, though, you have to interpret it. You have to be able to talk it, it, about it. It doesn't matter how it you interpret it. It is not so the, sacred the, the, the that point it should is, not be interpreted. The point is, life is sacred. And life is sacred for an atheist, 
A life is sacred for a man, whether he is a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, or whatever. So the issue is not to debate the meaning of sacred. The issue is there cannot be any exception. If all men are created equal, there is no exception that a white men are created in a manner that is superior to, say, non-white people. No, all men are created equal. There, there's a famous saying. I'm not sure if I'm paraphrasing it right, and I'm not sure to whom it belongs. They are not against you. They are merely for themselves. That, I think, is true of most groups and, and why we're afraid of minorities and majorities because we think we're always at opposition to each other. Now, most groups are not, and most groups fall into that category. But every once in a while, there is some minority or majority, however you want to look at it, that is a group that is, in fact, against you. Well, you flip that and, statement around of yours. Okay. Which is basically, the, the content of that statement is that do whatever you want to do to benefit yourself, but your profit should not come at the expense of another. Well, that's a that's a, a a good interpretation. Yeah. So, and 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 that goes back again to the very simple principle that was enunciated by John Stuart Mill. But, Harm principle. You know, you you have the right to do whatever you want. I mean, that was the argument with people like what Mark Emery and others. You know, if I want to smoke, I want to smoke. It's my decision. You know, that that debate was fought out over the Nineteenth Amendment in the in in the American case with the prohibition. You know, they all got worked up, and they, they brought in the, the law, and they amended the Constitution, and they put prohibition. Less than, what, a decade later, they had to get rid of it. So they had the 20th Amendment. So, yeah, in that sense, the Constitution is debated about. That's right. But the abstract idea of the Constitution is debate will take place within the rules set within the Constitution. Okay. Well, the, the all men are created equal. And so that, that's, what, that, that's from the Declaration that, of Independence, in, not it is the Constitution. A, fair enough. So in, it is in that principle that the Constitution becomes sacred. You know, that is, we all agree that we will debate it within that. If you're not going to agree to that, then we throw away the Constitution. You know, it's interesting. Some people say that the, the rights of Americans ended that the day the Constitution was brought into law. The 13 intervening years between the Declaration of Independence, which elucidated the, the rights that you're talking about in a noble sense, maybe a sacred sense, were then codified. And so you have Americans, even though it says in the Constitution that the rights laid out in this Constitution don't constitute all the rights held by men. People forget that and say that, hey, you got a, you got a right to free speech, but you don't have this right over here. It's not in the Constitution. Well, those who make that argument can keep making that argument. There is the, uh, the other argument that the Constitution only stays down certain principles. It doesn't take anything away from anybody else. What has happened is the explosion of regulations that have taken place. The actual Constitution is barely 20 pages. There are three articles, the article for the president, for the Congress, and for the ju judiciary. You look at the Article 1 that's dealing with the executive, there's only, I think, three or four sub-articles. So it is how the regulations have proliferated that has become the web in which we have bound ourselves in, you know, and that's what we have to unbound. But the rules for that unbinding is within the Constitution itself. So if a people, and that's where, again, going back to Motion 103, if all our representatives in Ottawa or the majority of our representatives in Ottawa are comfortable with the notion that they're going to limit free speech and they're going to prosecute Islamophobia and the Canadian public is all for it or the majority is for it, we are there. We are helpless.
uh, obviously I'm, I'm not from Scandinavia, but I have read there is a Swedish town where most of the Jewish population have left because they no longer feel safe. Malmö, yes. Because of threats from the <coughs> Islamic community? Yes. And uh, I think something like half of the population of Jews in Malmö have uh, disappeared, have moved out or gone to Israel. This, and I put this to all the Jewish organizations out there in Canada, those who are fighting battles that were won years ago, is it because they're frightened of all these neo-Nazi skinheads, there are millions of them of course, who are about to come and attack them, or could it be they're frightened of other groups? The chattering classes are talking all the time about these uh, terrible Nazis that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, that we never actually see. But well, we have about, I think, uh, by the last count, we may have 18 uh, Nazis. However, some of them are too fat to walk, and, and <laughs> so they're not really mobile. The real crux uh, of, of the matter is that Islam has managed to conquer for itself a special position where it is not to be criticized, it is not to be ridiculed, and if you do so, you take your life into your own hands, and this is being accepted by most of the chattering classes, by the university professors, by most of the journalists, uh, by, by the priests in the, the Lutheran, uh, Lutheran church. Yeah. The reason why it's this way is because they will use violence. We were never properly introduced. I'm Garrett. O'Donnell. The latest in a long line of traitors. The old man was. I'm your own sweet da. Well, maybe you could tell us something about your family history. I really couldn't care less about that. It's all a bunch of lies. You know what they say? History's written by the winners. But this is a matter of Irish heritage. We're searching for national treasure. National this, national that. We're all Europeans now. Yes, but you must still feel proud of... A about what? Well, something that happened a thousand years ago, or didn't. You gotta live in the present, girl. Speaking of the Constitution, Salim, you know, one thing I think people tend to forget is that ideally a Constitution should be a limit on what the government can do, not on what its citizens can do. Am I looking at that right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. The Constitution only lays down a certain principle. I'm talking now about the U.S. Right. Constitution. Right. On all the issues that it is silent upon, People are free to do what they want to do. And, and that's the beauty of the Bill of Rights, the first ten, the ten Amendments. Mm -hmm. And the First Amendment is therefore so important. They have no power, have the right to abridge anything about what people say, do, associate, etc., etc. So there you are. You are you're, you're right. What has happened, however, if the people keep pushing for greater and greater intervention by the government and the government keep taking that argument and expanding its arms, which is what is happening in Canada, the people lose their rights, people lose their freedom. You were arguing or, or, or making a point that I, th I think you saw sort of a contradiction between people who were wanting the freedom to be able to speak on the Islam issue and yet were also disdaining Holocaust deniers. Did, where, where did you see that? There was a conference in Toronto uh, last weekend which barely went reported in the mainstream media. And this conference brought in a host of speakers uh, from across Canada and from the United States. And it was dedicated to basically uh, repudiating Motion 103. And that's when the, the paradox 
was staring us right in the face that many of the speakers and many of the people who were gathered in this forum are the people who would be extremely upset if people started engaging in a discussion about the veracity of Holocaust denial, as, as the term goes, and they themselves couldn't see the contradiction there. That Holocaust denial, if that is protected speech, if Holocaust denial becomes hate speech, then that exception is a precedent that leads to Motion 103. You see, the the other point that I might I want to draw up, I and mean, these are all related in some way. I mean, you cannot untangle it. It goes back to multiculturalism that all cultures are equal. Multiculturalism in the 1970s, late 1960s, 1970s, was one set of legislation or public policy adopted. In case of Canada, it was a legislation that went into our Charter of Rights and Freedom as Section 25. It came with the other set of principle, which is open immigration. This was in the 1960s, where selective immigration was abandoned, that notion that, you know, immigration from Europe or immigration from Britain and Australia and New Zealand to Canada would be the one which is the privileged immigration, not from the uh, continent, from Africa, from the from India. I can tell you from personal experience during that time, I don't know why you're using the word open immigration, because I had relatives who had British passports and could not immigrate to this country while other people from the Caribbean... But that's, that's after. That's, yeah. the, that's the legislation that I'm talking about, because until 1965, for instance, in the United States, immigration was not open immigration. That was the famous 1965 U.S. naturalization law that was passed open up the immigration. It happened in a way to commemorate or to pay respect to John F. Kennedy's memory because John F. Kennedy had been pushing that bill. In the 1920s, America had closed the door. After World War I, America had closed the door to open immigration. Prior to World War I, America had a period of open immigration when the great numbers of Europeans came, including Jews, from the Pale of Settlement came. You know, this was the big bulge. And then came the closure. And so in the 1930s, for instance, the Jews could not emigrate out of Nazi Germany or Nazi Europe. They couldn't come to Canada. I mean, the famous line mm -hmm. of Prime Minister Mackenzie King's government was, one is one too many. So after the Second World War, the debates that happened led to what is called the open immigration. I mean, that principle was challenged by Enoch Powell, I remind you. That Rivers was 1968 blood, yeah. when he warned what it would happen. The point that I want to drive at is the world of post-1945 led to many fundamental changes in terms of values that were taken for granted in North America or in Western Europe. One of them was the issue of free speech because people shared the same value. They came from the same ethnic background. They had the same historical memories. And so they treasured free speech issue as it evolved. But after 1960, 65, 68 in Canada, that is in the 1970s, as the door was open, the numbers started coming. I am an immigrant of the post-1968 phenomena. And the numbers came in, people from a different culture, where these, these values don't exist. Because these are values that have to be educated. People have to grow up into it. People have to be trained about it, talked about it. Students have to learn. 
So the values from 1970s that were taught in the Canadian schools, in the civil society, in the public institutions, is what you are talking about, Bob. That is, all cultures are equal. Just because you have a British passport, you cannot come. So that's, you know, how, so, so that's how Canada became no longer quote, a free country of individuals, but now we're a, a nation exactly. of immigrants. Because we entered into, you see, you are now talking my language. You started abandoning the principle of individual rights, and you started adopting the principle of group rights. Mm. When all cultures are equal, what does culture mean? That is collective. It's not individual. Okay. An individual has no culture. He, he is born into a culture, and then he becomes shaped by a culture. You see, so all cultures are equal was the ideology that pushed the country into collective identity. And so as the numbers of immigrants come into the country, that is the United States, Western Europe, Canada, Australia, from cultures that do not have the respect for individual rights, they are going to demand protection of the group rights. Okay, now if we, that is the culture that values, quote unquote, hold sacred individual rights, are not going to implement them, we are going to slowly abandon them, what happens then? You see, a space cannot remain vacuum, it is filled up with something else. So the group rights starts filling up. That's exactly where we go to what I read in your previous break the Chief Justice McLaughlin talking about it. We in this country do not have unlimited free speech. In other words, we have to respect group rights. So the Muslims say you cannot insult the Prophet, or at least a segment of the Muslims say. The Jewish population says, or a segment of the Jewish population says, you cannot discuss Holocaust. You say, that is the Canadian public now says, Canadian politicians, yes, we cannot discuss it because that would be insulting to the Jews or it would be insulting to the Muslims. You know, as far as immigration goes... that goes to diluting our society. So in the case of the United States, this whole debate that is now happening in the United States, it doesn't happen only because Trump got elected. It has a point of origin. It goes all the way back to 65, or as I pointed out, Enoch Powell, that with new immigrants, you can upturn the constitutional principle. That's what I was about to say, is that with immigration, it's been demonstrated, especially recently with Pew Research Council, doing statistics on the political views of immigrants. And that open border policy by the left, I think, is designed specifically to keep the left in power. What do you do? You improve increase the number of people who are going to vote for a big government when you have a big government in power. It's as simple as that. It goes back to what you were saying, Bob. It's like not necessarily what the group is against. It's what they're for. They're for power. They're for power, and but, they want to increase their power and, but and maintain Robert, their power. Robert, it is not simply the left for power. The right, it is, politics is about power. So yes, it's not one no, side. Again, let's define left and right. The left, the fascists, the communists, all those are on the left. The conservative party is on the left. The it's liberal the party of, is on the left. The new Democrats yes, are on the left. Yes, I, I'm in agreement with you. The issue is, the struggle is between limited government and unlimited government. Okay, if I might phrase it in that way. Mm-hmm. That is the, 
expanded government, large government, ultimately the government it becomes what is a nanny state, yeah. a custodial state, and a government that is limited to maintaining law and order, which is ordered liberty in the Burkean term, and the rest is individual. So here is the issue. The left itself is not monolithic. There was a time, again amnesia, that left was not for globalization because the left was one within the boundaries of the country that fought for values of what they called the working class. The left traditionally was protectionist. Well, left was protectionist, wanted all the benefits to accrue to the working class and that would be paid by the capitalist class. We're back to Marx. That's the debate. The left today, ironically, is the multi-billionaire limousine socialist the Bill Gates, the Sam Zuckerberg, the Google owners, and, as you're talking about, the immigrant, the Hispanics, who are coming in, who desperately wants the benefits of this free society. And the billionaires are willing to give it to them, to take it away from the left that was at one time protective. Now this left has become nationalist, i.e. this left has voted for Brexit. This left has voted for Donald Trump. In other words, this left is no longer left in the classic sense of which I was talking uh, 20 seconds ago. This left is back to we the people. We don't want this. We want our sovereignty. We don't want to be dictated by the United Nations. We don't want to be dictated by the World Trade Organization. We don't want to be dictated by climate change, etc., etc., etc. You see how these things have changed. And so I come back to it. Immigration now is a policy. For instance, in Canada, it has never been debated in the parliament. It is a purely an administrative and custodial imperative that the people in power make. If we, the people, are in power, which is what Trump has happened, he said, we will build the wall. (laughs) Right? So we have to be very careful as we are talking. We should not become stuck with words. We should enter the contents of the word and try to understand the implications of the word and how it plays out. So when Trump says that both sides are engaged in violence, the left calls him a pro-Nazi. Right, but it is the left who are the Nazis. Anti-fascist is anti-First Amendment. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So Antifa, anti-FA, First Amendment. I got gotcha. you. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like limited government and unlimited government, we certainly have limited time to continue this conversation, and we're out of it right now. But we will unlimit our discussion again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. I challenge you to a duel. A duel? <laughs> you got yourself a deal, brother. Come on. Ricky, you don't know what you're doing. Come on, honey. This is liable to be a bit messy. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Where do you go? <laughs> hey, Frenchie! Please put that thing away before you kill somebody. <laughs> you mean we're not going to duel? I hope not. <laughs> That's the closest I've ever been to a duel in my whole life. <laughs>
Me too. <laughs> what do you mean, me too? I was told that it was safe to challenge people over here because American men would be afraid to do it. American men, eh? <laughs> I guess I fooled you with my Brooklyn accent, eh? 